You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. On today's episode of the Real Vision Daily Briefing, you'll hear a special update from Real Vision co-founder and CEO Rao Pal on how he's approaching the market amid this incredibly chaotic environment. Check it out. Hi, everyone. I'm traveling right now, so I'm doing this from my hotel room, but I thought there was so much important going on that I need to give you an update. Now, with geopolitics, as I've explained, it is a really difficult game to try and understand the probabilities and what you should do. The first thing to do when it comes to geopolitics is to do nothing, is to watch, absorb, and try and understand what the playing field is here, what the ramifications are. Now, I must admit, I didn't think that we'd get this far this fast in terms of Russia's actions within Ukraine. So I've been slightly back-footed, but I've already been expecting a global slowdown in, in the economy. And so I've been starting to position that way by buying bonds, some gold, some dollars, that kind of stuff. But let me talk about what I'm seeing now, how I'm thinking through this current event, and then some of the ramifications. Now, this is geopolitics. We have no real clue how this will play out. That's why it's so hard. Economic events are much more forecastable. Geopolitical events have many more different nuances. And you have to use that kind of decision tree structure to assess probabilities of all of the things that could happen and trying to figure out, okay, how do I protect myself? Can I make money out of this? What does this all mean for the much bigger picture? So there's a lot here. So let's dig in quickly to where we are now. There are, as ever in geopolitical disputes, two sides of of a story. And when you're trying to analyze geopolitics, you need to be aware of both. So then you can understand what is propaganda, who you're being told by what person for whatever reason. And in this situation, we know Russia's been very clear on its intentions to buffer its borders. Peter Zihan's piece the other day made it very clear. I think Dee Smith's gone through this, and most of the geopolitical strategists we've had on Real Vision have also looked at this. So Russia's been very keen on stopping NATO encroaching on its borders. NATO, on the other hand, is very keen on not letting Russia encroach on its borders, but it's been moving NATO's way. And this whole game has been played out for some period of time. I've written this up in GMI and written it up in um, Macro Insiders, or Real Vision Pro Macro, is this whole situation that we saw started with Chechnya, then moved to Crimea. This Ukraine story was the Crimea story. Then it's these splintering states. Then it's uh, Ukraine itself. It's been a story that the Russians have had an obsession with in how they want to deal with it for their own sovereign protection. And I don't want to go into the geopolitics of who said what to whom and why. Um, That's not relevant right now. What's relevant is trying to figure out where we are. So I think we have a very narrow window, maybe two weeks, maybe less, which is that the Russians have surrounded Kiev pretty much. Now, we understand that the supply chains are not good, but we also understand the Russians have done this a lot of times before with bad supply chains. It's pretty common. Um, and sheer brute force is how they do it. So they're surrounding Kiev now. And what happens in the next few days or couple of weeks is vital. You can see the Israelis have been negotiating on both sides. Maybe there's a negotiation to be, ha- to be had here. And the negotiation will be something like, and again, we don't know because this is geopolitics, 
And there's a lot of different national pride and a lot of consideration, global consideration, all in this. But let's assume that they can agree a ceasefire, agree some sort of um, um, splitting up of Ukraine. So they allow the splinter states, then maybe they say, well, the government can move and have its own Ukraine, but over towards um, the west side. And the Russians put a new government in in eastern Ukraine. They have West Ukraine, East Ukraine. Something of that sort kind of solves a lot of the problems, although obviously it's still not a good situation. And we'll come on to the big picture still uh, later. But that could see a de-escalation. If we can find some variation around that, where the Ukrainians themselves get some sovereignty, they will may lose some sovereignty, or they they keep sovereignty of the whole country, but a puppet government gets put in, and the splinter states go to Russia. In which case, they're kind of surrounding um, Ukraine anyway with Crimea as well. That to me is something where sanctions get dropped, not dropped, but eased off over a period of time because everybody feels like that they've negotiated a settlement and therefore Russia can be rewarded with something. That's the best possible case scenario that I see right now. Um, it's not my highest probability case either. Case number two is that the Ukrainians don't negotiate, don't surrender, and the Russians level Kiev, which I think is the highest probability case. Again, I find it really tough to assess the probabilities, but in my mind, that's what I think the most likelihood is. Then the Russians say they've got two choices. One is to keep Ukraine as Ukraine, or the other thing they've been threatening is take away its sovereignty, which is I Russia takes over Ukraine. They either put in a perfect government, it might be too late for that now, or they take it over. Okay, that is a bad situation, a really bad situation, because clearly sanctions are not going away. NATO is going to amass um, weapons and defences on the borders, tensions could be extremely high, and the food crisis is going to be writ large. So in scenario A, the food crisis still happens. We still go into a global recession. I think that's almost a certainty now. We were going there anyway, and now this is exacerbating it, and that's not going to go away. I think we're going to miss the um, harvest season in Ukraine. I don't think there's going to get a chance to harvest when you're at war, and then the planting season gets missed as well. Uh, then we've got the situ situation with fertilizers, etc. It may be a very difficult uh, agricultural season globally. So that's one. On the second situation, if the sanctions are in place longer, now we've got a full splintering of supply chains that has to happen, and it's forced to happen in a, in a period of time. That is a nightmare situation where Peter Zihan's world of really dramatically increased food prices leading to civil unrest, crime, all of the things on a global basis is pretty likely. Um, that's really ugly. What that can do for the Middle East, what it can do to other countries. I mean, I'm in Utah right now, and the taxi driver, I always chat to the taxi driver, um, and I asked him where he's from. He said, Sri Lanka. Um, I said, I have things in Sri Lanka. And he's like, terrible. I said, why, what's going on? He said, well, people are out in the streets rioting or protesting. Uh, there's massive queues outside the gas stations. I said, yeah, gas prices are high. He goes, well, that's not the issue. The issue is the government's run out of dollars to pay for it. So they just didn't buy enough gas. So there's not enough gas for the country. These are the kind of linkages that happen in situations like this. If Russia remains out of the global system, which looks increasingly likely, 
then we probably have a big liquidity problem. And that spits around the world in various ways, whether it's countries who are trying to get access to dollars, banks trying to get access to dollars, um, or whether it's credit spreads widening as people pull back, trying to assess the risks that are going on. And we don't really know. I mean, how does it affect Egypt? How does it affect the Middle East at large? How does it affect all sorts of countries? Again, we don't really know yet. But that's a hugely concerning moment, and that's a big global recession um, if that takes place, and a massive monumental geopolitical shift as the world really is forced to separate out. China starts separating out. And again, we'll come to a bit more of that in a sec. Scenario three is the worst case, which is I think that Russia has made it clear that if you oversupply Poland with, with weaponry to give to Ukraine, then they're going to consider Poland as part of the war. This is Peter Zayan's point about a potential invasion of Poland. I put that at a low probability, but what the hell do I know? If that is the case, then okay, this is now the worst case situation because this is NATO versus Russia in a full war. Um, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying these words, but that's where we are. And it's kind of shocking and terrifying. The issue I have with all of this, and I had underestimated it, is the knock-on effects are much larger than I first realized. That how things can spiral very few decisions into something utterly terrifying that we've not had to face, certainly in our lifetimes, and certainly not in, in, in the West. Other regions have, obviously. So it is, it's kind of on tenterhooks. The next two to three weeks, we will find out whether we have scenario one, scenario two, and then after that would be, will scenario three come into play? So those are the three main things. So what are the ramifications? The ramifications is something I've been talking about. And D. Smith made an incredible five-part documentary on Real Vision called A World on the Brink. And if you haven't watched it, you absolutely should watch it. It's forecast all of this. And that was made back in, I don't know, 2015. The world is, is splitting. I think everybody is aware of that. Deglobalization writ large everywhere. And everyone's going to have to go to localized supply chains. And so that means the US, Canada, Mexico will become more interdependent. I hear that the US is, is making moves towards Venezuela to see if there's anything that could be solvable there. The US needs another footing um, over in the east, and obviously Iran with its oil supply is a very important place and always has been in the world. Uh, anybody who wants to understand that, read a book called The New Silk Roads, um, which gives you, Peter Frankopan's book, Silk Road, gives you a whole understanding of why that region is so important, particularly Iran itself. So I understand why they're doing that, because it kind of neutralizes some of the situation and some of the supply shortages going on. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. The other issue in the geopolitics is everybody has now learned that the dollar is a liability, not an asset. So i.e. dollars can get taken away from you at will. So even though it looked like a very smart move to weaponize reserves and the financial system, what is actually happening is you are now forcing the de-dollarization of the world. Now, my view on that is that's a slower process. Obviously, Russia just got thrown out, but they've been planning for it. Let's, 
let's be absolutely clear. Russia's been planning for it. They probably didn't imagine it this fast, this uh, apocalyptical, but the Chinese will be planning it too. The central bank uh, digital currency is part of that planning. So everybody wants to move away from the dollar. And right now, the instant thing that any central bank can do is own more gold. So I think this is a very bullish gold environment uh, for central banks because that's what they do. It's an asset that they're comfortable with. I also find very concerning at the geopolitical level that we have frozen the assets of people that have not been tried in any sort of court. Now, it depends whether there's a confiscation going on here or freezing of assets. It depends on EU law and who's taking what. But it tells people that property ownership is not something that they perceive. If it's if you own a property that's not in your jurisdiction, you don't own it. Um, so I think that is, again, a shift that's going to take people's mindsets. Obviously, all of these trends are very bullish for Bitcoin particularly, but the crypto world overall over time. Now, crypto trades both as a risk asset and a store of value. The store of value element is becoming predominant right now and very clear. Um, the risk aspect, well, it's a bloody risky world out there. So let's wait and see. China, how that plays out in all of this, we don't know. But China's been moving towards separating. And I can't yet think of all of the ramifications as we are already splitting these worlds apart. If this gets accelerated, what does that do? But the world is a net debtor in dollar terms. And the more of these debts you start writing off by forcing people out or seeing defaults, the higher the dollar goes. And the dollar is a big risk here. So if you get a liquidity squeeze, the dollar goes up. The dollars are the one thing that I'm looking at. But we also know that the Fed try and stop that because they know the dollar is the wrecking ball. They can't let the dollar go up too fast. So they start supplying the world's, uh, the world's banks with swap lines. So every time they've done that in the past, it's eased the issue. But here you've taken out a very big economy. I mean, Russia's gigantic. Russia probably has more natural resources than the rest of the world added together. It's something of that magnitude. So the GDP may not be big, but this asset base is enormous. And without that in the world, we end up with a huge loss of trade. And we've also got these dollar liquidity issues, which I think will bite the Europeans, uh, bite the US and bite everybody else. So I think that's all setting up to be a bit of a mess. The Fed will come in and try and flood the market with swap lines. So the money printers start in different ways. And I know there's a lot of people watching this go, well, that's not money printing. It's enough to start changing the denominator effect of certain assets. So be cautious of that one. I actually like bonds in this environment because if you raise food and fuel and input costs, you're destroying demand. We've already seen demand slowing globally. We're already seeing a lot of forward-looking indicators. I've written a lot in, in it, and I, I wrote it up in the GMI that you all got. I think everybody got it. There's so some of my thinking about all of that, and I've been writing about that frequently in, in GMI and um, um, Macro Pro as well, to talk about how that's playing out, but it's playing out exactly as expected. The world is starting to slow down. Uh, the US is starting to slow down. Bond yields are starting to come off. And I think even with higher prices, I know everyone thinks it's inflation. I think it was a massive tightening of monetary conditions and total demand destruction on lower middle class households. So I think that is a big problem coming. And I think bonds should fall in yield. And, you know, right now, US bonds are a safe haven. So there's safe haven flows that come into that as well. I think, generally speaking, bond yields should come down towards the 1% level. And let's see, are we building structural 
inflation by the changing of supply chains or does that get solved by technology you know are factories that come from china using people that are moving to the us using robots inflationary or deflationary maybe it's inflationary first as you build them and deflationary over time as the costs come down as i said before the digitization of anything tends to push costs uh, down to zero over time so i think that's going on i think in europe we've also got sorry there's a lot to jump around with um, with the green energy push. And I know a lot of people think it's dead. Poland's been fighting for it to stop the carbon system. But Europe is under pressure to, in the medium term, transition away from reliance on energy from Russia or maybe Algeria, which is a southern neighbor that has a decent amount of gas. Um, it has to move away from that. And the only way is to go towards renewables. There is a friction point. It takes time. And that friction point can cause these supply disruptions because there's not enough supply and there's still demand for it. So that has to change over time. But I don't think the Europeans want to get rid of the carbon uh, system they set up. I think they need to encourage it. And I know it's painful. So I think the Europeans are going to start dealing with pain via um, fiscal stimulus. I think they're going to have to give people money to pay for the rising cost of fuel and food. Um, that's an MMT-style transaction where essentially it gets monetized by the by the ECB, and maybe they do similar um, to yeah. I think they want to offset the fuel costs to people, but still get force the corporations and the utilities to change to green. Because if they don't change, then they're always going to have this reliance. Now, if this flares up further with Poland and NATO and Russia. I mean, th there's no way they can justify having that reliance. So that's a complication. There are side deals that can be cut. Russia and Germany um, have direct pipelines. There's, you know, again, I don't know, but we need to be very cautious of how this plays out. Um, so that's the carbon situation because, you know, carbon credits has been a trade that I've been in for a while. They've had a huge sell-off. I, I actually quite like it. But again, it's much less clear at this situation. So I will give you that. I don't really, I'm not sure. Bonds, I think, are a decent bet. Gold, for the reasons we've talked about, are a decent bet. Long term, I think it plays into what crypto is and means in this world. A distributed network that's not owned by anybody but owned by everybody is almost priceless in a situation like this. Um, I think when it comes to equities, we don't know. If situation one comes across, I, we get some resolution. It's a dirty, ugly resolution, but it's something. Then I think equities rally. Um, I think that is possible. I think even scenario two, equities can rally um, if they finish the invasion and then something, we get some clarity. Clarity is what markets want. Is it going to go into World War III or not is what we're trying to grapple with right now. If not, that's okay. Markets could rally. Then they have to deal with the recession coming. The markets sell off again for that, quite possibly. So it's not very clear. Equity markets are troublesome. I've been waiting to, to buy tech, and I don't think we can get there until we start to see the monetary spigots opening up again. And I think they will come, and I think they'll come in form of transfer payments. Don't forget, transfer payments was the new genie that came out of the bottle in COVID, is they could give direct monetary handouts to people as opposed to just blanket fiscal stimulus by cutting taxes. And I think they're going to have to do that here because people are going to get really hurt by the situation of food prices and fuel prices. Now, can you trade commodities? Can you, can you expect them to go further? The hard thing is we don't know. A resolution that half of these commodities are down 
50% in minutes. So it's a really difficult world to try and own them and volatility is high, so it's hard to own calls. So to make sense of the world, buying commodities doesn't feel like a good bet. The ramification of the high commodities, which is slowing growth, makes bonds a good bet. The ramifications of the weaponizing of reserves makes gold a good bet. The dollar is a generally quite a good bet it's on a massively key level against the euro. I've been tweeting about this. If it breaks the kind of 109, 108 level, I mean, it's going down to 80 cents. I think that's probably likely over time. But I think the central banks will step in first to try and slow it. It probably goes down over time because Europe has no choice now but to militarize. So Germany has kind of kept away from doing that. Most of the nations had. They're now going to probably have to break their 3% budget deficit, you know, implied rule that they never stuck to. But the Germans can't increase its military or its spending to NATO without doing that. They're going to have to do that in this situation. So even in scenario one, with the dirty compromise, the Russians, the French, the Italians, everyone's going to have to spend on military. So there's a huge boom in the industrial military complex as ever. Those guys make money out of everything. Um, but that means that deficits run and the euro potentially weakens over time. And it weakens over time also because Europe is threatened. So do you want to own your money in euros? Less likely. The US is much more removed from the situation. Again, it's much more attractive. And Europe just hasn't been producing the kind of growth that the US has at corporate level. So I think the euro falls significantly over time until maybe euro Europe has bolstered its defences and we have some resolution of this situation, but a longer term resolution, not what happens overnight with Ukraine. So I am bullish the dollars, but you need to be careful because central banks get involved. Um, I think thematically, I think generally technology is global and is less reliant on these supply chains, apart from the monetary supply chains. But I think the central bank digital currencies will allow some sort of interoperability, but these can be cut off and cut on again, as we've seen with Facebook in Russia and stuff like that. So overall, I don't think it stops the rise of technology because you need to you know, produce robots to produce stuff in the US or in Europe to avoid reliance on, on other nations. Um, those linkages between Canada, the US and Mexico sound like that that's an important place to focus um, because we will see money pouring into that kind of opportunity, the industrialization of America. You know, obviously, things like copper, which are all very tight, aluminium, these things will continue to go higher. There's almost no way you can reindustrialize even at a kind of robot level without using more and more copper. So you're kind of in a copper super, super cycle, whether you like it or not. Um, so that probably continues. And the fact that the Russians, the huge producers of literally everything, um, makes the situation complicated. So I don't think we get a resolution, a mean reversion to commodity prices uh, for a significant period. Um, I can't see, if Russia hadn't invaded, then I would have seen a reversion. But now I just think the world's going to have to deal with having to find new supply chains. In that scenario one, I think there's going to be a weakening in sanctions on Russian commodities. So they'll, they'll sanction them on a bunch of stuff, but they'll say through the back door, listen, we need the we need the copper, we need the nickel, we need the oil, we need the gas, which is a bit of a shit show. But that's that's kind of, I think, the state of the world. It just depends how much, how tough Europe will be on this and how much pain it will take, which again is I think it's fiscal. So once we start seeing fiscal stimulus, obviously risk assets tend to outperform because the denominator falls. 
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, look, there's a lot there, and I've skipped around a bit. There is, it's virtually impossible to assess probabilities because you're dealing with human behavior at an individual's level, and we just don't know that person well enough. We don't know how Poland's going to fit into this, where Russia's line's going to be, who's going to side with whom. We don't know what it means for the Middle East. We don't know what it means for China. We can make a bunch of assumptions. So I think it's best not to try and be too clever, too cute, pick the exact scenario, but go at the toppest level macro to say, okay, what are the things here that can help protect men? And those will be gold, um, bonds, dollars. And I like crypto, but I would prefer it if we had the central bank printing. It feels for crypto very much like the setup in 2020 in March when uh, we sold off really hard, failed to make a new low versus the low a year and a half, uh, a year and a bit ago prior, uh, and then took off. We haven't made a new low. We've thrown a war at crypto. We've thrown um, you know, Chinese bans. We've thrown... Um, all sorts of stuff, 8% inflation, uh, central bank with an expected eight rate rises, which is never going to happen. Um, and crypto didn't make a new low. So I think there's a signal there. But again, we need to watch it. I don't think that's the bet to put all your money in right now. I'm, all of my money's in it. But um, but I am adding to these other trades. Um, the crypto situation gets interesting, I think, as people start to realize that at sovereign level, this becomes a solution for them too. And the rise of central bank digital currencies, they're moving away from the SWIFT system, that's all coming into this game. Um, that's about all I can think of for now. Follow my Twitter feed, so I'll try and put some thoughts out there. Um, if I've got anything really major to say as things develop, I'll let you know. Just be careful, try not to be too brave. Um, this is not the time to think that you know it all because you don't, and nor do I. So. Everything has a shifting probability, and we just need to be on top of the news flow. It's another thing to remember with news flow. There's an enormous amount of propaganda from every side. So you don't know the truth, and you will never know the truth. You'll never know whether Russia is exactly meeting its plan, or whether every tank is falling apart because it's ancient, and the Russians have no will to fight. All of that is propaganda. What the truth is, no one knows. Um, and it's usually a bit of both. So just again, keep your filter up. Just filter it out and just look at the top level. You know, where are things moving? What is going without trying to be too clever in making assertions? Because I've seen many people blow up their entire PL by thinking they know what's going on when really they don't. Anyway, best of luck out there. Sorry, it's horrific times. Everybody's trying to scramble to get an idea. And I think geopolitics is about to be a much larger part of what we're going to have to deal with, which I don't like because it's all so unknown and everybody can sound smart in geopolitics by sounding scary and shocking and everybody wants to listen. So just be careful of that too. Anyway, best of luck, everybody. And uh, I'll touch base again soon. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.